0: Very good afternoon to you, saints. It is a joy to gather with you, a joy to sing, a joy to remember Christ together. Uh, you can open up to uh, Matthew uh, chapter twenty-three, verses thirteen to twenty-two. And uh, before before we start, let me address the elephant in the room, or rather, the elephant that's not in the room. Uh, there is no verse fourteen in your text just in case you hadn't noticed notice it now uh, because there is no uh, verse 14 in the original manuscripts that are uh, earliest and most trusted some translations choose to include a verse 14 Uh, most do not uh, because it is believed that it was interjected there by scribes uh, and and does not belong to the original as as the other manuscript testify of Uh, this verse 14 is found in mark and Luke. So if we, uh, Lord willing, one day get to them in Mark and Luke, we'd be happily preaching from them. Uh, but we do not believe that they originally were there in Matthew. Hence, we will skip those today. Uh, with that said, saints, we, we are arriving in this section at, at the woes of, of Jesus, the terrible woes, rebukes by the Lord. Some refer to them as the rolling thunder of God's wrath in oral form. These are heavy words. The saints, these words are not addressed to those who are hidden in Christ. These are addressed to the hypocrites, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. They are the object of these woes. There's good reason, the saints, for us to to, to, to get in this text and to consider how it may apply and speak to us. Paul later Having been a Pharisee himself says, says, these are God-breathed words, good and useful for instruction and rebuke and correction and training and righteousness. So let's pray that our time in the word this afternoon would lead to, to that end. Would you, would you pray with me as we, as we start? Oh, Father, uh, your, your word, Lord, is, is true because it comes from your mouth. Father, it is intended to teach us and to train us and to correct us and to rebuke us as your spirit leads and guides. Father, would you indeed sanctify us in your truth this afternoon as we consider the woes of Jesus to the Pharisees, as we consider the heinousness of sin, and as we considered who the Lord Jesus is, who, who has covered us Lord, and from our sin and from the weight and guilt of our sin. would we see him clearly? Would we rejoice in him together today as we open your word? We ask these things, oh Lord, out of grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me read to you, saints, from God's word, Matthew 22, verses 13, 15, and on. This is God's word for us. The woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. This is God's word. Thanks be to God indeed. Saints, there, there's a, a lot in this text uh, for us to consider, but, but let me start by clarifying or defining some of our terms here before we get into the text. Saints, what exactly is a woe? The text is filled with them. But what is it exactly? And how should we read this? The woes that Jesus pronounces here clearly is, is a, a statement of a judgment, a, a, a looming judgment, a coming judgment. And and as a sense a, 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 an outcome of, of the Lord's anger about something. But it, but it's not just that, as in it's not doomed are you. Instead, his, his woes express much more than this. And this is seen in the text throughout the chapter, at the end of the chapter, and in the surrounding context of the chapter. His woes, and this is seen in the context, con- contain kind of a sense of grief and sorrow or regret as well. And there's even undertones of the Lord's compassion as he is casting these woes on the Pharisees. Now we notice Jesus does not rejoice over the fate of evildoers. And although acknowledging that the faith, that their fate is a, is a terrible one, he never rejoices over their final lot. We we see this on the cross clearly, where he is moments from death. And he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. It's a clear example of the Lord's compassion even to the ones who who nailed him to the cross. Like sheep without shepherd, it it, it evokes compassion in our Lord. We see glimpses of this at the end of chapter 23 as well. Right after Jesus finishes his woes and finishes casting this this looming judgment over the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem lamenting over the state of his own people. This is verse 37 at the end of the chapter. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You are not willing. Saints, Jesus, in, in pronouncing these woes, does so lamenting the unwillingness seen. In the Pharisees. He he grieves over their rebellion. And it's it's important for us to consider that even in strong words of judgment, we, we see the line of Judah pronouncing judgment, as well as we see the heart of Christ as the good shepherd, who is compassionate about those who are without a shepherd, shepherd. It is it is Jesus, of course, who perfectly embodies this: love and meekness and gentleness. But if there's ground for wrath, Jesus will not hold back. There is a perfect union in Jesus of both wrath and grace, and, and, and yet spoken with, with, with great harsh uh, judgment, uh, certain judgment, uh, it is spoken with, with a desire that they would turn from it. Saints, another observation in, in this chapter is that, that the woes spoken by Jesus are not just arbitrary. It's not a general statement of, of, of a discontent in his judgment simply against people that oppose him. It's not like, oh, you don't like me? Well, I don't like you either, so woe is you. That's not the stretch of the woes. His woes target specific, corrupt behavior and which is condemned. Every woe that you see in this chapter is followed up with a, a, a specific example. And then there's the hypocrites, the, the refrain that Jesus uses over them. This is the kind of an umbrella term that he uses. A hypocrite. I mean, we know what a hypocrite is. It's part of, of our, our day-to-day vocabulary. We're familiar with the word, right? But, but let me just say that even in our day, uh, some would use it a little loosely. Let me give an example. If, if, if you say one thing, but you don't follow through with it, some would call this hypocritical, and it may be. But it could also be caused by just plain forgetfulness, right? It's not forgetfulness that Jesus addresses here. He addresses real corrupt hard motives. Corrupt motives that, that, that are true uh, hypocrisy, rooted in, or steeped rather, behavior steeped in, in true hypocrisy. The root of the the Greek word hypocrite in the text uh, refers to someone who plays part in a play, someone who wears a mask, one who willfully puts on a false appearance uh, simply for the sake of the play. That's what an actor does. In case of the the Pharisees, this this was seen in them by them putting on a mask, a so-called mask, if you will, with false appearances, pretending to have certain virtues that they did not have. And it's important to keep this in mind, that the aim of the heart of a true hypocrite is to be deceitful, to give false impressions about who they truly are. And the Pharisees fit this bill, of course. Uh, On top of that, they've actually began to live out their hypocrisy and have embraced it so much that they were sincere in their hypocrisy. It's become part of their they're lie and live. So in a sense, Jesus' woe here counts as, a, as, as just a wake-up call from their, their slumber. Uh, his, his woe is an interu- interrupting alarm clock. It feels like you, you, judgment is looming over you. This is your fate. Turn, turn from it. And it's remarkable, saints, to consider that the one who calls them away from these heinous ways is himself the one who can give life. And to give it abundantly, and then there's those that that have received his life abundantly. Those in the scene that are bystanders, his disciples. That they are with him. They are are hearing these, these 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 woes cast on them, and they are bystanders and, and taking taking heed to the warning of, of the danger of, of religious hypocrisy. And that is us today. All those. In Christ, we stand here and, and, and hear these words and, and should take them as words of warning, a word of, watch out, do not be like them. This is dangerous, move away, run far from them. That. And that's why I titled my message, Warnings from our King, warnings that, that warn us against the dangers of hypocrisy. The saints, I want to I walk through this text in, in two very straightforward points, the uh, two warnings, if you will. Uh, point number one, Don't walk their walk. Point number two, don't talk their talk. Uh, Don't walk their walk. This is the first two woes found in in verse 13 and 15. And these first two woes, saints, speak of, of willful ignorance of the way of salvation, Christ, as well as their zeal for their own established religious ways. So, so willful ignorance of the true way of salvation and then, then, then and zeal for their own established ways. Uh, Paul, the, the apostle, later in Romans, refers to this exact problem. Uh, Paul, of course, having been a Pharisee himself, knows the ins and outs of their walks and their talks. He walked in their ways. And he writes this. And Note, too, how, how he, like Jesus, longs for them to, to turn, turn from their wicked ways. He writes this in, in Romans 2, the first three verses. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own They did not submit to God's righteousness. Ignorance of the righteousness of God, Christ, while aiming to establish their own paths of righteousness. The saints, this is a dangerous cocktail that Jesus confronts them with, walking in your own righteousness while ignoring God's revealed righteousness in Christ. And This is bad fruit, uh, fruit of stressing human tradition, their own oral tradition, their own human religious rules that they had come up with. Saints, when either of those two are present and are placed at equal value uh, or higher value as God's Word, one is no longer talking about the narrow path that leads to life. Jesus is that narrow path. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no one comes to the Father but. Through me, adding anything to him in order to obtain the righteousness with God literally means widening the road. And when that happens, saints, we're no longer talking about the same road, the road that leads to life. And this this is surely what, what the Pharisees were doing. Much inspired, scripture was present. They, they They took the Old Testament as God's word. But with that, they rallied around their own, oral traditions and their own practices and their own make-up of rules. And this is, this is, this is, this is not something from, from ages past. Sadly, it's much alive in, in what's called sacred tradition. Uh, in, for example, what, what is today the Catholic Church. There is no affirmation of sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Well, script, there's scripture, but not scripture alone. We see alongside Scripture that there's sacred tradition making its entrance into the church. And the fruit of that kind of practice is is, is very comparable to to what happened here with the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Many Catholics today are calling on Mary in prayer. Now, why is that? Where, saints, is this in Scripture? Because it ain't. It is, however, sacred tradition that teaches that Mary is in closer fellowship with Jesus than we are, that she is in closer proximity to him, and therefore it is wise to to call on her as a mediator between you and God. So says sacred tradition. What scripture says instead is this, that when anyone does sin, we have an advocate, singular, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one, he is the mediator, the God man, Christ Jesus. And, and, and for the Pharisees, it's, it's, it's this very issue, this very Jesus, this, this very mediator, this God man that is ignored and rejected. Hence, the fierce words of Jesus to them You are not going to enter the kingdom of God. And this is the king himself speaking, the king of the kingdom. This is not hyperbole. This is hard truth. This is looming judgment pronounced from the one or by the one who himself will sit on the judgment seat and to whom they will be giving an account. And just consider that this is even after uh, Jesus had given them a, a hermeneutics workshop, if you will, in, in Psalm 110, showing that, that David, King David was surely speaking of him as the Messiah continued in their ignorance and and continued to publicly reject the way of salvation. One of the minor prophets, Malachi, uh, speaks of those who are leading God's people in a very high and important way. He says this, uh, speaking of the lips of, of a priest, that they should guard knowledge and so people should seek instruction from their mouth for they are messengers of the Lord. Well, Jesus' woe is in part based on their failure of keeping with understanding, their failure to keep with knowledge. And instead of guarding knowledge, which they ought to, and in doing so, they would have arrived at the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah that the scriptures teach of, they are guarding people from the Messiah. They're not guarding knowledge, they're guarding their own religion and keeping people from the Lord. And we know why this is. This is, this is the plain as day uh, truth of the Pharisees. They did not see a need for repentance, the call for repentance, the call for faith in Christ. It was, 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 was displeasing to them. Instead, they, they aimed to obtain their own righteousness by their vicious law-keeping. Matthew Henry puts it well and says of the Pharisees in this context, They made it their business to press the ceremonial law, which was now in the vanishing, and to suppress the prophecies, which were now in the accomplishing. And Jesus' woe, of course, are are both against their own rejection of Christ, but also against the hindrance of others to come to him. The the woe in verse 15 is, is simply a horrifying statement. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. They drag others with them, push him in front of them. Saints note that, that Jesus isn't condemning their zeal. There's no, no condemning of that. But rather the religious mold that they had carefully formed, that they aimed to press and convert people into. Instead of calling people from their sin to God, they don't even call men to God. They merely called converts into their own opinion and traditions. A a mere theological system of oral tradition. And, And that's all what they were accomplishing. A religious system in which there was no room for Christ, no room for his message of salvation, no gospel, and thus they, they shut their own proselytes out of the good news of the gospel. Instead of helping, they're hindering. We aren't saying it's not not to mistake their, their their practices as merely a little bit legalistic, maybe. Uh, that would be way too charitable of a judgment. There was no Christian teaching as Christ Himself wasn't preached. It was law only, and not even law according to God's word. It was law according to their own tradition, their own interpretation, their own own additions, all the while refusing to acknowledge the Christ who is clearly and plainly seen in the scriptures. So what's the fruit of this all? The fruit of their labor, the fruit of their religious system. I think it's religious, zealous, zealous output. So zealous religious output, and not just without Christ, but being a hindrance to Christ. Paul later would, 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 would write that, that we preach Christ and him crucified. We, we've sung of Christ and him crucified and then risen. Why do we do that? Be, be, because he is the way of salvation. He is the way to the Father. He is the Christ of the Scriptures, the one who was prophesied about. He is the only one who has power to forgive sins and to, to wash away our sins. He, he is the one that did not fail in keeping with any of God's commands. He did this perfectly. And he is the one by whom God is reconciling people back to himself. We want to preach him, Christ, and then crucified and then risen and power. Saints, we, we want to help people see him. We want to help people come to him. We want to help people trust in him. We want to help people walk with him. Charles Spurgeon writes of, of the Pharisees, again, in context of this passage, and he says this, they, they ought to have helped men into the kingdom. Instead of doing so, they hindered those who were entering. Are there not false teachers nowadays who put stumbling stones instead of stepping stones in the way of those who are entering the kingdom of heaven. Stumbling stones instead of stepping stones towards him. Saints, as a church, let us be warned. Well, I think we have many stepping stones in place in this wonderful church. The very name of our church being the very first stepping stone people see. Risen, Christ, fellowship. May may they see him as we worship together. May May they walk in our midst and say, God is in your midst. Christ is alive in you. This is a stepping stone that we have, and I I thank God for it. But saints, what about our stumbling stones? Are there any of those present in our midst? And if so, what might they be? We may read this woe and and, and come to conclude that we're simply not the object of it, right? Well, that's right. If, If you're in Christ, you are not the object of that specific woe spoken by Christ. Instead, by God's grace, you've been brought to see who Jesus really is. You're not rejecting him, but you have come under him as a a guilty sinner and been washed and and cleansed and and sanctified by by the blood of of the Lamb of God who who takes away all our sins. Instead of hearing the pronouncement of hypocrites, we can rejoice in the words, such were some of you. Praise God. However, this doesn't automatically make you, not being susceptible to elements of hypocrisy. It may not be obvious hypocrisy, like full-blown hypocrisy, as we see in the text, flat-out rejection of Christ, no gospel. But there's elements of hypocrisy, saints, such as pretense that are more prevalent in the church today, maybe even in our church today, than we'd like to admit. And pretense, saints, can look real innocent. It starts by responding to a fellow saint here in our midst. You get here this afternoon and you hear someone say, hey, good to see you. How how are you doing? And you say, I'm fine. Yeah, fine, how are you? But you're not that. You may not be fine. You're actually not fine at all. You kind of dragged yourself to church today. Maybe you're walking in shame. Maybe you're feeling low as you've ever felt low in a in, in while. Maybe maybe it's shame that, that, that's the result of poor choices of your online visits at night. Maybe it's shame because your marriage is in crisis and you just have no idea how to even start talking to someone about this, the burden that you bring. You hear the church and, and you see the saints around you and you see people just being happy in Jesus and you feel like, I don't want to be a killjoy here. I don't want to to be a burden to people. Let me just, you know, level up with their optimism, right? Let Let me just, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Saints, may I suggest that this is how pretense potentially slips into the church, into our church, You're literally playing the part of a I am fine church member and putting that mask up. But the part that you should instead be playing is that of a saint who is struggling and who needs to be reminded of the greatness of Christ and the greatness of his gospel and the grace that he offers so freely. This is all of this. Saints, the Lord ain't looking for a congregation of picture-perfect Christians, whatever that may be. He is not. The Lord is not pleased with a congregation of saints that tries really hard to look Christian. Yet we, when we fall into sin, and when we encounter brokenness in our own life, when we when we encounter the effects of the fall in our own life—sickness, death, discouragement, sin—and we fall back to pretense and just pretend like it's not there, or like keep up the facade of the, the, the "I'm fine" member at the church. This could be out of fear of man. This could be out of insecurity. It could, could, be, could be there for all sorts of reasons. This often, the saints, I think, goes hand in hand with that someone not tasting of the deep mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus, not knowing his or her forgiveness, not knowing the sweet, comforting embrace of Christ that says, dear child, you are mine. Don't lose heart. I have overcome the world when your sin abounds, my, my grace abounds more. Saints, this is what Christianity can look like without the cross, which is no Christianity at all, if we pretend. Question, saints, when is the last time you've confessed your sin to another Christian in this church? Any sin. Is it part of, of, of your habits to, to regularly confess your sins, confess your struggles in life with others in this church? It's what we need, saints. It's not because we need another mediator than Christ. We, we don't need more mediators between God. We need nothing more than Him. But it's what the Scripture calls us to in a real way, and it's it's an important stepping stone away from pe- pretense and, and pretense can. Give way to just full blown hypocrisy in your life. And it's important for, for, for both you, the one who confesses, as well as the other hearing your confession or hearing and witnessing your your, your, your sharing of your struggle. This is exactly, I think, what, what, the, what the Pharisees are accused of. And they receive their woes for, for not just keeping up appearance, but, but by making disciples of outward appearance. In their case, their Pharisaical system law-keeping and all sorts of religious bells and whistles, right? How do we apply this to us? How, how does your potential pretense, saints, and maybe even your lack of willingness to be vulnerable and to share struggles, to, say, to, to confess your sins, maybe rooted in pride, saints. How is your lack of outward demonstrating your own need for Jesus, how does that paint a picture for your fellow saints, it might not be a genuine reflection of how you're actually doing, how you're actually walking with them. Saints, walking in the light together provides for fellowship. Have you ever noticed in, in small group settings how it works, you know, like one person shares a struggle or, or, or shares and confesses a sin and all of a sudden, everybody's like, yeah, me too, yeah. And before you know it, all of us are like, oh, hold up. I'm not, I'm not alone here. Like, everybody's struggling. Everybody on the struggle. Good. And it does something to it, right? We, we bring things into light, and all of a sudden, we, we have fellowship with one another. Humble acknowledgement of our weakness, saints, and our struggle with sin is disarming. It disarms us, not just from the lie that we keep up to others, but by saying that we have no sin, but it also gives us fellowship, true, genuine fellowship with one another. Have you ever noticed the Apostle John, that writing of this freedom? of of walking in the light, and how does this tie to fellowship? He writes this, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It doesn't that we have fellowship with God, which we clearly have when we are forgiven. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the kind of fellowship, saints, we as a church are are called to. Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the exact antidote of his woe to the Pharisees. Their pride and hypocrisy kept them from doing it. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. This must be us, saints. This must be us here at RCF. People who recognize their own spiritual poverty, and their great need for God, and, and, and who are not ashamed of making disciples of that kind of walk with God in the open, in front of your fellow saints. One of the most disarming instances that, that I have experienced of this of this disarming demonstration of, 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 of people being poor in spirit is, 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 was a couple of years ago. Uh, Julie and I were invited by Luke and Jane, an Australian couple that we went to church with in, in Beijing. And, and they were they were ministry leaders there. They had four kids. And we at the time had three. And, and by the time they invited us for lunch, we, we just met. It's like, oh, man, great lunch with the, with the Luke and Jane. And, and we were on the way to their apartment after church, hungry. The kids are cranky and tired. So we were like, kids, hold it together. You know, yeah, you can play with their kids. Don't, don't scream. Just Just calm down. There will be food. We get we get to their apartment, and I knock on the door. And first of all, I hear just all this the sound of their own kids and yelling and screaming and all that stuff. And and it took a while before the door was opened. But, but the door opens, and and Luke, the husband, opens the door with with a straight face, says, "Hi, so glad you're in. Come in. Find yourself a seat. But bear with us for a second. Jane and I are in a fight. And and." Not, it's not the kids. It's, it's, it's he and his wife are in the midst of a fight. And the words were, please come in. Have a seat at our table. Enter our world. Enter our world of needy sinners, broken people in need of Jesus, just like you. Saints, there was zero pretense at that front door. And it was a little awkward at first. <laughs> It was, but I can't tell you how, how refreshing a moment it was for me to see genuine fellowship and the willingness to just lay it all out. Come, enter my world. I need Jesus as much as you do. Amen, amen. I love when, when, when Paul writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the gospel. And then he says, please know that I am the foremost. Like this is, this is the imitation that we, we can, and Paul says, Imitate me. I'm I'm the worst of sinners, but imitate me as I imitate Christ. Saints, if you and I are, are taking our eyes off the cross in our personal lives, if we ourselves are not constantly remembering that by grace we have been saved, that it is the work of Christ with which God is pleased, if that's not constantly on the forefront of our mind, it's likely not going to be part of our interactions here throughout the week. We might we might proclaim it here from the stage, but but in our fellowship throughout the week, this might not be present. And with that, saints, if we, we are failing to consistently discuss our own needs together for the cross of Christ and for his atoning sacrifice, it's not unlikely that we at some point just arrive at a place where we don't talk all too much about that cross anymore. This is the first step to, to, to be on the road to a pretense, and saints just thinking about others around us. If we would do that, such pretense will take away some wonderful stepping stones that Spurgeon mentions for others to be reminded of their needs of Christ. Some stepping stones that would aid their walk with the Lord Jesus and and seeing authentic Christ followers admitting their own need for Christ again and again, admitting, admitting their sins before God and before others. This keeps pretense away. Pretense is the antidote to genuine Christian community here at RCF. And I, yeah, if present, saints, it will suffocate the life of this church. I've, I've joined Anne and Brian here as, as a lay elder past October, and I've learned many wonderful things about this church. One of the things I've learned about RCF, too, is that there is a lot more sin in the lives of the saints here than meets the eye. But glory to God, it's it's sin that's been atoned for. Sin that's been forgiven. Sin that's been forgiven, saints. And there will be more sin. And that sin, too, will be forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. Saints, your boast is in the Lord. Boast in the risen Christ. The Pharisees, saints, are are, are just a terribly good example of what happens when pretense gives way to full-blown hypocrisy. And Jesus says, don't walk their walk, saints. Let that be our first point. Second is verse 16 to 22, and I've labeled that don't talk their talk. And what I mean with that is we, as we read these verses, Jesus speaks of their talking, the talking of the Pharisees, and particularly the, the oaths that they were making. Saints, we'll have to cross some cultural miles here in order to arrive at what, what these verses really talk about
1: even if, if
0: reading it once or twice over you still might ask like, what sorry what, what is the point of that specific well like what's up with their oaths and, and how, yeah what's up there what how does that work what's the point of that it's, it's a little complicated and, and there's not much written about it but i found some Saints, I assume from most of us that, that, that you and I are not making oaths on a daily basis. That's just not a practice in our culture. We, we might make uh, promises, we commit to things, we sign documents, and, and maybe when required in law or under law or, or in court, we, we make an oath. Most cases, when someone swears in your interactions with him or her, it, it's kind of like adding weight to words that this person says. Like, I swear I will never do it again. And what they really mean is like I will not do it again. That, that's what they say, but they add weight with their with their with their added oath. I swear. If you really want to be like adding weight weight to a statement, people do something like this: I swear on my mother's grave. You don't want to be crass, but that's what people do. I swear on my mother's grave grave, I will not do that. <laughs> Personally, if I hear someone Swearing on their mother's grave, you're you're a suspect in my mind. He's like, what is going on there? Why would you do? Why it's it, it's it's an unnecessary uh, emotional weight connected to a statement that can just be a statement. And in reality, saying, like, what does it even mean? If, if 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 someone lies, like, what is a grave of a person that is no longer with us going to do about that? It's it's a, it's an empty oath. It's an empty statement. Uh, one cannot be held accountable by that person. Saints, oaths may not be common practice in our day, but it was in the first century. Uh, I found a, a quote by Philo of Alexandria, a first century Jewish philosopher uh, that spoke to, to this general habit being present in his day of, of oath making or taking. And he's not too keen about it. And this is not speaking about the Pharisees. It's a general cultural comment he says this but there are also people who swear upon every occasion even when there is nothing at all about which any doubt is to be raised as if they were desirous to fill up the deficiency of their arguments with oaths and later he finishes this from a frequency of oaths arises a habit of perjury false witness or impiety it's these kind of oaths that the, the Pharisees have have, 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 have created really. And it's, it's this what Jesus casts judgment on. The Pharisees, saints, didn't want to just make uh, commitments or, or mere promises. They, they wanted to be publicly known for swearing and taking oaths and thus having the appearance of being more, you know, weighted and substantial and spiritual. I and mean, this should be the first pretense red flag that goes up. Why would you do that? Now the Pharisees believed in the God of Scripture, right? They they believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they would think twice before swearing in his name. Even in like throughout all of the Old Testament, you can see the, the, the name of the Lord just spelled with with four four consonants in the, in the Hebrew language. As to not by accident to pronounce the Lord's name in vain, let alone swearing by his name. This this was a no-go. However, what Jesus confronted the Pharisees with was that instead they made, they, they made up a system of oaths and vows that were arbitrarily non-binding. They had, they, it sounds as dumb as it sounds. They had made up a system of vows and oaths in order to appear before others as though they were genuine in swearing by all sorts of important religious matters, such as the temple or the altar in the temple, while now having no intention to keep their vow, so it may have sounded something like this: "By the temple, I swear, I will tithe my cumin for the rest of my life." This is later found, right? They would tithe their cumin, or this: "By the altar in the temple." You, you, you hear that? oh, like there's 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 added weight to it. It was completely meaningless. They were they were creating oaths that somehow pointed to God in some way or fashion in order to to add the appropriate spiritual weight to it so that they publicly could swear by the altar in the temple, yet in private they reasoned that, oh, but this oath is not binding. It's a made-up system of of, of oaths that have no value and and convenient uh, for them. They could just not keep their vows pretending them to be genuine. They they were simply creating loopholes, aiming to sound holy and and religious, just in line with the rest of their their character and their their walk with no intention to keep it. And this malpractice that they happily carried over and and, and taught others is is what Jesus condemned clearly. And they are like blind people leading other blind people, and all of them will fall in a ditch Well, that ditch had come. Their practice is so low, saints, that, that Jesus goes low on them too. But there's no woe included in this passage. There's no hypocrite address. Instead, he calls them blind fools. Moros is the Greek, literally the root of our English word moron. Moron. Did you really think you want to get away with, with this? What is this? Just think of this, uh, conversation with um, with your four-year-old son. Son, did you brush your teeth before going to bed? And your son says, yes, Father, I have. You know he didn't, so you confront him with him like, son, you haven't. So why would you lie to me? And his answer is something along the lines of, Oh, I thought you meant yesterday. That, that's, that's, it's pity. It's what a four year old is capable of. Saints, these are not four year old kids. This kid's no, no, this is, it's, it's low. His, his answer was meant to deceive, right? He knows this. He, he meant to give a certain impression, meant to convey a certain truth all the while hiding about, you know, gymnastics. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yesterday, right? It's like, no, no. It, it, words that, meant, that are meant to lead on. And it's this kind of trickery that had popped into the daily habits of the life of the Pharisees. They knew that they couldn't live up to the binding oath that they were making that others were making. They knew they were sinful, but they didn't just want to acknowledge it. So what do you do? Well, You make up a system that works for you. Logic that may have worked in their courts, saints, but this twisted logic does not work in the Lord's economy. It is first degree pretense and hypocrisy. The Pharisees, saints, had gotten that desperate, that desperate. They wanted public affirmation so bad. They desired to be thought of so well by the crowd that they would go at any length to get what they craved. At the cost of their integrity before the Lord. And Jesus reveals their crookedness and their spiritual gymnastics publicly. Jesus reveals their absurdity. Spurgeon again writes in this that when men once quit the plain teaching of Christ, it is easy for them to go into all manner of heresies and absurdities. When men once quit teaching of Christ. You just go downhill. And absurd it is. These were not a bunch of four-year-old saints. These were the religious leadership of the day, trying to cover up their behind-the-scenes messes and and sin. that didn't work. Jesus, of course, rightly confronts them and and unpacks one by one their trickery and, and plainly states that any vow by whatever object ultimately is made before God. This is what, what you see in verses 16 to 22. One by one. Like, you think by swearing of the temple your, your oath is not binding? What, what do you mean? Who do you think dwells in the temple? It's the Lord's temple. Everything is the Lord's. Of course your oath is binding. And again, this is, this is nothing new with saints. Uh, Jesus in his woe you know, restates what he had already put in the open in Matthew 5. He says there, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make, a, make one hair black or white. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus, in revealing publicly their their petty oath scheme, uh, cuts out any of their religious appearance and holiness, and instead exposes the nature of their very, very wicked heart. He exposes their trickery and casts judgment on their falsehood. And Jesus, this is publicly, this is important, the crowd doesn't know this. Jesus publicly puts them in the open and, and puts shame on them. And this, this, this is a shame that they themselves could not rid themselves of. No more pretense options in their repertoire. They weren't escaping the, the true assessment of the Lord, who knows what's in the heart of man. And this is what the words of Jesus do; they pierce through the thickest layers of deceit, and He will expose it. And Luke writes of this. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the house tops. Have mercy, Lord. Friends, this is this is what Christ does to all of us when in his words he Addresses you in, in, in your shameful dealings. His words cut, and and when they are made visible, there's no longer hiding. Christ calls you to 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 put it all out there. There's there's no no pretense uh, that we can keep before the Lord. We can keep pretense before others, but not before the Lord. There's no dark corner to hide in for the Lord Jesus. Jesus exposes all of it, and He will. He will expose all your darkest and deepest secrets. He he will expose all shame and and guilt. If if, if you're not covered under the blood of the Lamb, if you are not a follower of Jesus, there will be a day that that all your guilt and all your shame and all your sin and all your words and all your evil deeds and conceit and, and you name it, will be in the open. There is no hiding from it. Shame and guilt that is all over you as you stand exposed before a God who is holy and just and righteous and vengeful. And this is the shame that, 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 and guilt that, that God's holy law reveals to us. Friends, listeners, if you're with us online and this speaks to you, you cannot rid yourself of this. You can try, but you'll be just smearing mud all over you. In these woes that we have just read, Jesus indicates that the Pharisees would not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because of their falsehood. John, in his vision of the new Jerusalem in Revelation, confirms this. He writes, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and Practices, falsehood, where are they? They're, they're outside, outside the gates, excluded from God, excluded from fellowship with Him. Friends, if, if there's anyone among us here, anyone that will listen to this message one day online, if, 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 if there's any conviction of sin in you, in hearing Jesus confronting the Pharisees and, and putting open and, and putting it all out, seeing the heart of man. If there's any, any conviction of sin in you, this is the grace and kindness of God at work in you. Any conviction of sin, any conviction of sin is is the Lord's kindness towards you. Kindness that is meant to lead to repentance. God is truly making his appeal through us right now. We implore you, whoever you may be, to, to be reconciled to God. Reconciled on, on, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Oh, friend, there's there's so good, such good news for sinners. The same one who exposes your guilt and, and, and your shame with his light, the Lord Jesus, can cover your shame. He can cover your guilt, your deepest secret or your most public shame. He can blot it out and can cause it to be, be thrown in the depths of the sea. Jesus, at the pronouncements of these woes of judgment, was just a couple of days away from being publicly shamed himself, having never ever committed a falsehood himself. That he would hang fully exposed on the cross for people like you, taking on your shame, taking on your deceit. And he endured saints, this is good news. He endured the cross, despising the shame. And he did so for the joy, joy that was set before him, joy of being restored to the place of glory he had with the Father, and joy of knowing that he would be redeeming people, all who were called by the Father he would bring to him. Saints, we have no hope without, I have no hope without Christ. You have no hope without Christ. I'm so thankful that this is our collective Confession that without Christ we have no hope and he is ours. Friends, Jesus has promised he will never, ever cast anyone away who will come to him in faith and repentance. But woe, woe to the one who chooses not to come. Woe to the one who will on judgment day stand by himself on the throne, or before the throne rather, without an advocate on his side. Christ Jesus the righteous woe to him because you will you will experience the wrath of god oh if you hear his voice today do not harden your heart come and instead of receiving woes and judgment receive a, a, an embrace of sweet forgiveness oh he is he is waiting for people to come to him to to to, to come to him and call his name for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, come, come to him. Let's pray, saints. Oh, Father, what what glorious gospel that we have. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for for him having having lived a perfect life, for, for him willingly enduring the cross, for the joy that was set before him so that we would, would one day be gathering with him and you in glory. Now, Father, would we not be blind to our need for him? Father, help us to, to know the, the heinous ways that are in us, Lord. Seek, seek our hearts out, Lord. Search our hearts, Lord. Bring bring sins to mind that we need to, need to turn from. Lord. Now, Father, help us to, to live in in genuine transparency before you and our fellow brothers and sisters of this church. My Father, I pray that we all would experience genuine, authentic Christian community here as we together acknowledge our need for, 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 for the Lord Jesus in our lives. And Father, would we know him more today? Would we love him more? And would we have more joy because we do so? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.